This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The following podcast contains explicit language. <laughs> It's Thursday, July 14th, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Donald Trump is said to be going with Mike Pence as his VP pick. I'll believe it when I see it coming down the escalator at Trump Tower before a huge, huge crowd. Believe me, things aren't official in the announcement world of Donald Trump without the escalator and the hugeness. So today, the country gets to know, in Mike Pence, the man who once wrote an op-ed claiming, quote, despite the hysteria from the political class and the media, smoking doesn't kill. And he wound up by saying, a government big enough to go after smokers is big enough to go after you. First, they came for the menthol smokers. And I said nothing because, well, I think we all know about that demographic. Then they came for the camel light smokers. And I said nothing. I mean, I tried to, but this hacking, <laughs> it's, it's just hard. And then they came for me. And I said, the joke's on you. I already have stage three carcinoma, but not from smoking, possibly from the LGBT community. But the snowy-haired, starch-shirted Indiana governor is but one of the searing hot speakers at the RNC, an event Trump has promised to be the most exciting ever. There, also on the list, is actress Kimberlyn Brown. I didn't know much about the actress who starred on The Young and the Restless, which is one demographic Trump's doing well with and one demographic he's not. Here is a clip from The Young and the Restless sister show, The Bold and the Beautiful. Kimberlyn Brown's character, Sheila, confronts the character, Lauren, who I think makes a fair point. Lauren, you are being so unreasonable. Unreasonable. I'm supposed to be reasonable with you after what you did to me? You stole my child. You kidnapped him and exchanged him with another I baby. I know I did. And I told you I'm sorry for that. I truly am sorry. What more can I say to you? Also speaking at the convention, Antonio Sabato Jr., who's all in on the Trump train. I would love to work for him, and uh, especially for the rest of the year, whatever and he what needs me to do. what capacity would you like to work I would. For I probably could do executive protection right now. I could, uh, I go, I could go with the guys, because I'm all licensed, ready to go in California, and actually I'm, I'm applying for Arizona and Nevada, but I could actually work for him, uh, escort him, be in the car, driver, that kind of thing. But most fascinating to me is a class of speaker who's normally offstage, the billionaire donor. But Trump has pushed up front Peter Thiel, PayPal founder, Gawker lawsuit ringmaster, Tom Barrack, who Forbes describes as a former billionaire. Thanks, Obama. Harold Hamm, whose presence shows that Trump has given up most of his ego because Hamm is actually ranked as richer than Trump by Forbes. And then there's Phil Ruffin. 
Eight years ago, when Ruffin was a spry 72, he married the then 26-year-old supermodel in Miss Ukraine 2004, Oleksandra Nikolayenko. And the spa in his casino is currently named Alexandra's. Aw. According to the Las Vegas Review-Journal, in a rare interview that Ruffin did, Oleksandra and Trump's wife, Melania, are, quote, like peas in a pod. They're very close. And the Ruffins love movies, and they went to see Lincoln with the Trumps at Mar-a-Lago. Donald rated it a six, and the girls wanted to leave at halftime, Ruffin said. I thought it was just okay. The two girls are from Europe, and they didn't know what the hell was going on. Now, Ruffin doesn't do many interviews, maybe because jerks like me make fun of his wife for not appreciating three-hour-long movies written by Tony Kushner. But he also, when pressed by journalist John Ralston on Las Vegas PBS, said that the self-styled multi-billionaire Donald Trump might not have the ability to self-fund as he originally proclaimed. It's going to be very expensive and probably cost a billion dollars. And, uh, you know, I, that's a lot of money, even for Donald so um, he, he spent a lot of his own money, and he has more to spend, but I don't think he can go to that billion-dollar level. Ruffin went on to claim that Trump's going to be soon coming into a lot of money from a big deal. He didn't say what the deal was. He said it wasn't the deal that he was doing with Trump, and it didn't seem like it was the deal that Tom Barrack was doing with Trump. That's right. The RNC is an opportunity to give Trump's business partners a giant stage, and I'm glad to have a front seat. I want to find out their visions, their proposals, their message, and most of all, what all these casino and hotel magnates fear. You go to the hotel manager, and why don't you tell him there's a ghost in 907? Ooh, spooky. On the show today, I spiel about the Donald Trump of England. Who kind of hates Donald Trump? Boris Johnson. But first, the fight against AIDS is going well, but far from over. We speak to the U.S. ambassador who is tasked with fighting AIDS throughout the globe. An estimated 13,712 people with an AIDS diagnosis died in 2012, which was the last year I found good statistics for. Before that, it was over 14,000. A few years before that, it was over 15,000. The point is it's coming down every year. And if you compare it to, I mean, if you didn't live in the 80s and if you didn't live in the early 90s, you don't know what it's like. But this was, you know, presented as the epidemic that could upend humanity that would no doubt be killing tens to hundreds of thousands a year. And yet through science, and I think through education, we've gotten a handle on it in the United States. Another statistic I read said that a 20-year-old who's diagnosed as HIV positive today, if he takes the right medication, could live to 77, which is a, about the lifespan of the average American male. This is not the case worldwide, however, and the United States government is doing something about it. It's called the U.S. President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Release, PrEP FAR. It was started by George W. Bush. It continues today. And Dr. Deborah Burks is the ambassador at large and U.S. Global AIDS coordinator under this program. She joins me now. Hello, Dr. Burks. Hi, how are you, Mike? I'm, I'm well. So I think I got the U.S. AIDS picture right, which is let's not be sanguine. Let's not say that a, it's not still a problem and a horrible disease to be managed. And let's also not pretend that there aren't some populations that are disproportionately affected. But that's the United States picture. Could you give me some idea of the world picture as regards HIV? 
So globally, we have about 37 million people infected, and the majority of them are from sub-Saharan Africa, about 25 million. So the majority, 73-74% of the entire burden of HIV-AIDS is in sub-Saharan Africa, the majority of new infections, over 70% of the new infections globally, and over 70% of the deaths are in sub-Saharan Africa. So Africa and certain countries within Africa are really almost the epicenter. And I love the way you described how we we interpreted the epidemic as the impact globally. And even today, when you look at many of the countries, particularly in Southern Africa, one in two to one in three to one in four are adults are infected today. So that, I mean, that really is we didn't have some medication in Africa and some treatment half of the population, a third of the population of the adult population would no longer be with us. So it really is quite an incredible pandemic. And I think you're just absolutely right. Between the science and education, we have a chance to really have a very different future for the world. One, what helped fight, I'm not going to say cured, but what helped the most in the United States in the fight against AIDS. And then the second part of that is how much of that can be applied to Africa? I think two things were critically important in the United States. You know, I I was birthed as a doctor right before the HIV AIDS epidemic. So it was my reality from the very beginning. But it was incredible to me that the individuals who came to me, the individuals who were dying in the 80s before we even knew what the disease was, were so compassionate towards each other, but also demanding for a breakthrough to have a different outcome for their future. And so I think it was the first time where we really saw patient advocacy in the throes of an illness that stood up and said, we need science focused on us and we need a different outcome. And the NIH, under the leadership of Dr. Fauci, came out and worked on a whole series of drugs with pharmaceuticals until they got that incredible triple drug combination in 1995, 1996, which if my patients who made it to that day um, and were able to get onto that treatment are alive today. So scientific breakthroughs demanding better treatment and care. And then I think the amazing amount of self-education. So that was the original cohort of very high risk, high visibility, and high knowledge that how HIV was transmitted. And then you fast forward 30 years in the United States, and we do, and we do have a relatively higher level of complacency where Many young people look at HIV as something that's out there, but they're not really at risk for. So there's a whole new generation now at risk for HIV AIDS, and that's the generation where we really see the new infections, both here in the United States among um, young men of color, particularly um, in inner cities, and in sub-Saharan Africa, young women between 15 and 24 are at enormous high risk. And so really trying to figure out how we deal with this next generation and how we really raise AIDS awareness and knowledge and make it real to them. How much did the safe sex message help in the United States? And is that being emphasized and is that working in Africa? This is the other side of the story in Africa. So under Secretary Clinton, about seven years ago, we launched a whole series of surveys called the Violence Against Children Surveys. We've now done in 11 countries throughout sub-Saharan Africa and Haiti, and um, we're going to do a total of 17 
that data really tells us something very interesting. It tells us that between a quarter and 40%, so between 25 and 40%, young women's first sex is forced, is sexual assault, is rape. So when you talk about safe sex, when these young women have no control over the fact that they were brutally raped, you really have to approach this in a much more comprehensive way where you're working within the communities in a way where that becomes unacceptable. Yeah. And so if the statistic is up to 40% of a young woman's first sexual contact is rape, then over the course of a woman's life, it stands to reason that it goes much higher than that, you know, your second or third or at some point along the way. So this, as you're emphasizing, makes the safe sex message seem almost quaint against the backdrop of that sort of sexual violence. To say nothing of the abstinence-only idea, is that still a requirement of the program? I know in the United States it's debated. I know that when it was started, there was a large percentage of the funding that was supposed to go towards that. Where is that at all feasible to emphasize abstinence? And is that actually still part of the uh, PEPFAR program? So when PEPFAR started, we didn't really have the data that I just spoke about. We didn't realize how common first sexual experience were violent. And, and what I didn't say to you is 10 to 15% of young men's first sexual experience is also rape. So we didn't have that Do you context. mean, wait, can I interrupt? Do you mean as a rapist or? No, as, a, as being his raped. first sex. Oh, yes, gosh. as being raped. So we didn't have that context at that time. And so without that information, it's it's difficult to have that discussion when the shared experience of young women, either they have been raped themselves or they know their best friend has or are there the girl that they sit next to in school has. So although I am, there is still abstinence programming that's supported at the country level, PEPFAR's investments have been very much focused on what young girls need and young boys need in a comprehensive way to deal with the environment in which they find themselves. And that means dealing with the community and working with the community about enforcement of laws that are already on the books that says rapists should be prosecuted. It's about dealing with the family so it's not an acceptable pattern of behavior where the mother has been raped as her first sexual experience. And so when the daughter is raped as their first sexual experience, it becomes normative. And then working very much with young women to meet them where they are and their needs are to really have that discussion. You know, if they're 10 to 12, they get one package of interventions, 12 to 15, something different, 15 to 18, again, something different, all the way up to 24, recognizing that a woman of 18 is not the same as a woman of 12. Now, you've I, I wanted to ask you a general question about why is it so important to break out uh, HIV AIDS as opposed to tuberculosis, as opposed to malaria? Maybe someone could make the case that, you know, it's just getting medicine and some some sort of lifestyle instruction to vulnerable populations. But that's the answer. I mean, tuberculosis and malaria don't travel along these vectors and, you know, have nothing to do with really violence. Correct. And, and, but let me say, we're also working very hard because we, we work in PEPFAR to create sustainable health systems. So we work at the laboratory level, at the clinic level. So the systems that we're putting in place, that human capacity is used for TB, HIV, and malaria, and any other diseases that the community experiences. So, but remember also that malaria and TB, by and large, are curable. 
HIV is still not curable. So when we talk about controlling this epidemic, we're talking about lifelong treatment and ensuring that people understand that it's lifelong treatment. Because the minute they stop their medication, their viral load goes back up, and then they can transmit the virus. So this is a this is like a daily commitment that the client is making. How much do HIV drugs cost? And are we at the point where everyone that we could reach, that your program could reach who needs them, are getting them? So yes to your second question, because we've really been working um, to create a much more efficiency and effectiveness in all of our programs so that we can do more within our current dollars. The drugs um, in globally, because of the Clinton Health Access Initiative, when we started PEPFAR, the cost of a year's worth of medication, even at the lowest prices that we could get, were between $1,500 and $2,000 a year. They're now under 100 under a hundred for a full year supply of medication, and in many cases around seventy-five dollars. So now the cost of treating patients is not so much the cost of the drug; it's how frequently you see that client and what we call the service delivery pieces. You know, them coming to the hospital or coming to the clinic, seeing a clinician or seeing a nurse. So that's where we're really working now with countries to really work to create a really efficient way for and a wellness way. So people, as I said, can live effectively with HIV/AIDS, live well and thriving with HIV/AIDS. Now, I just want to point out that the Clinton Health Access Initiative, that's not Clinton as in Clinton administration, and it's not Clinton as in Clinton, uh, Hillary Clinton's Secretary of State tenure. It's the Clinton Foundation, named after those same Clintons. But could you explain to me how they did that? It wasn't just people donated money and bought this still expensive medicine. How does this uh, nonprofit organization, this large consortium, actually lower prices of medicine? They worked very aggressively with what we would call the generic companies around the world and really showed the business market case for the investment. Because obviously, if you're producing millions of pills a year, you've got to have infrastructure. You know, you have to have a manufacturing plant. You've got to be able to manufacture the pills and ship the pills. And so that requires a large initial investment. And so working with companies to show them the effectiveness of that business model and what the market was going to be, they were one of the first groups that really defined the market. And with that was then PEPFAR and the Global Fund saying, we will purchase and we are purchasing this medication. So it created um, a demand and it created a, a clear business models where companies could see that they could make some degree of profit even in the generic world. And I think the companies that have been producing these um, generic compounds and the willingness of large pharma um, to really transfer that technology and transfer that technology early, long before the drug goes off patent. Companies have been transferring those patents and that intellectual property to generic companies to really accelerate the access to drugs in low-income countries. So that has been really the exciting thing has always been to me in HIV AIDS, although I've I've always been in HIV AIDS. The field has so evolved over time. The science has evolved, but what it is, the politics have, has evolved and the ability of HIV AIDS to really show a different future, not only for the, this pandemic, 
but the ability for the world to take on future pandemics and mobilize drugs and resources as a re- at a reasonable price. That's what we have today because of the U.S.'s response to the HIV-AIDS pandemic. Dr. Deborah Burks, and that is B-I-R-X for a good Scrabble score, is the <laughs> U.S. Global AIDS Coordinator, the Ambassador at Large and U.S. Global AIDS Coordinator. Thank you so much, Dr. Burks, Ambassador Burks. Oh, thank you, Mike. No, I'm just Debbie um, to everybody. <laughs> She's just Debbie from the block, please. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> thank you, Debbie. Thank you. Hi, this is Rachel Yucatel, and I'm here to invite you to listen to my podcast, Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. This podcast delves into the lives of those who have been reduced to a single headline. Each episode will take a closer look at the stories of those who are on a mission to change their narrative. Join me as we uncover the truth behind the misconceptions, shed light on the stories of those who have perhaps been wrongfully portrayed, explore the complexities of the human experience, and celebrate the power of second chances. Who doesn't love a good comeback story? And now the spiel. We go now live to news that Boris Johnson has been named foreign minister of the UK. I have never, ever seen anything like this in my life. I have never, ever seen anything like this. This gets more bizarre as time goes by. Oh, actually, that was not Boris Johnson reaction. That was the BBC reacting to the Tour de France where British writer Chris Froome lost his bike in a crash and finished the race by running up a mountain. Boris Johnson, on the other hand, faced an uphill climb of his own, it would seem, after orchestrating the Brexit, but then bowing out as a potential prime minister. We thought it was curtains for the floppy-topped, out-of-wedlock pop, but it was merely a curtain call, as he has been named Foreign Secretary, essentially Secretary of State. Now, let's recall some of Boris Johnson's greatest zingers. He called Hillary Clinton a satanic nurse in a psych ward. He likened Vladimir Putin to Dobby the Elf in Harry Potter. He said this of his queen's travels to Africa. It is said that the queen has come to love the Commonwealth, partly because it supplies her with regular cheering crowds of flag-waving piccaninnies. And here, as voiced by the BBC, is a limerick he penned to win a competition to insult the Turkish president. I should note the BBC bleeped one word, but in the spirit of free speech and rhyme scheme, I shall supply it. There was a young fellow from Ankara who was a terrific wankerer till he sowed his wild oats with the help of a goat, but he didn't even stop to thank her. Now, I support a lot of these insults, not the Africa one, but the others, like when he digged Donald Trump's assertion that there were some neighborhoods in London that the police were afraid to travel into. Boris Johnson said... There are some neighborhoods in New York that he wouldn't want to go to for fear of running into Donald Trump. The problem is Johnson is in the position of diplomat. And while England may soon be bereft of its nuclear submarines, should Scotland skegs it, I don't think the country should rely on the foreign secretary to be the one to go nuclear or submarine his country's standing. Already, Johnson's soon-to-be counterparts, including the non-dictatorial ones, have weighed in. The French foreign minister said of Johnson, he told a lot of lies to the British people, and now it is him who has his back against the wall. And the German foreign minister called him ungeheuerlich, which means egregious, monstrous, or outrageous. My thoughts? Boris is entertaining. 
if you don't have to rely on him for policy, diplomacy, or truth. Unfortunate that his last three jobs were journalist, mayor, and now foreign secretary. It'd actually be better for the world if Johnson could just be famous for being famous, a celebutante, quoted and followed on Twitter, but denied any real levers of power. But in the spirit of wit and AABBA rhyme schemes, I do have to say, Brit Boris courted controversy, displayed wit, but little diplomacy, weak on the facts, lacking much tact, equips not the same thing as cogency. And that is it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson is a Miss Ukraine. Not a beauty contestant, just someone who once visited the beautiful nation on the Black Sea and pines to go back. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai, or as we call him, Ungahoyalistai. Andy Bowers has had to ditch the bike and run up the mountain on an emotional level as chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The gist. We thought that... If Boris had gone with Erdogan being from Istanbul, there were a lot of possibilities with sickly mule, but he's the poet. Umpuru depuru dupuru, and thanks for listening. Wankerer. 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 <laughs>